1: is Crimes of the Centuries. When the invitation came, Virginia Rappé was skeptical. A party in some actors' hotel suite, and in the afternoon, It sounded like a snooze, so she told her friends she'd call them to come save her if the shindig was a dud. She did call them, but for the opposite reason. This thing was actually pretty fun, so she suggested they come to the top floor of the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco and party alongside her. It wasn't a huge crowd at first, maybe... Six to eight people milling about, but the music was playing, the bootlegged booze was flowing, and everyone was dancing and having a good time. Then, as often happens when one imbibes, the call of nature struck Virginia, so she left one of the three connected rooms to find a bathroom. The man footing the hefty bill for the gathering happened to have all of his belongings in the room adjacent to that bathroom, and he happened to follow he also happened to shut and lock the door behind him. Some 10 minutes later, when one of Virginia's tagalongs went to check on her, they banged on the adjoining door until the man finally opened it. And then they spotted Virginia writhing on a bed, tearing at her clothes and screaming, I'm dying, I'm dying. It seemed surreally melodramatic at first, but Virginia was right. Four days later, she was dead. And because the man who had been alone in the room with her for those crucial 10 minutes was one of the most famous actors in America, the criminal case that followed not only drew headlines worldwide, but it also changed Hollywood forever. In 1921,
0: one of Hollywood's biggest film stars is Fatty Arbuckle, a baby-faced comic who has America laughing.
1: born in 1887 as Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, a good-natured kid who'd drawn a pretty lousy hand in life, at least at first. Born in Smith Center, Kansas, he was the youngest of five children born to his parents, William Goodrich Arbuckle and his wife Mary. The family moved when Roscoe was barely walking to Santa Ana, California. His dad was a heavy drinker and his mother emotionally distant. As you can imagine, this was an awesome combination for a sensitive little boy, and he grew up without much affection or even just attention from either parent. That feeling of abandonment turned into actual abandonment when Dad William decided to up and leave his wife under the guise of finding better work elsewhere. He took most of the kids with him, but he left Mary with Roscoe. He'd never really been fond of the kid in part because he suspected Roscoe wasn't actually his biologically. After all, none of the other Arbuckle kids looked much like Roscoe, who was born pudgy and kept getting pudgier as he grew up. With his dad and siblings gone, Roscoe was alone with his mother, who had to work odd jobs to put food on the table. She turned to Roscoe for help on that front. At age five, the little boy began his first job hauling clothes and linens that his mother laundered for others. Roscoe would load the items into a little red wagon and deliver them. He'd also collect pay from the customers and deliver that back to his mother. He attended school but didn't like it much. His classmates had noticed that he was on the heftier side, and so the bullying was constant. The kids nicknamed him Fatty, which he hated so he started to skip school. Instead, he would go to the local theater where he would watch the performers rehearsing on stage. Roscoe was mesmerized. One day, when he was about age eight, he lucked into an onstage gig because a kid who had been cast to play just stopped showing up. The director noticed Roscoe watching on the sidelines and said, hey, you, you wanna try it? Roscoe was shy and insecure, And yet something about the stage just called to him. Yes, he said, I want to try it more than anything. The role was of a black child. Society was gross back then, and white actors often donned blackface to play black roles. So Roscoe was slathered in grease paint. But the character was supposed to be barefoot, too. So the director told the kid to run home and grab black socks. Roscoe started to cry. He was supposed to be in school. If he ran home to grab socks, he'd have to face his mother, who had no idea he was playing hooky. There'd be no stage debut for Roscoe after all. The director took pity and used grease paint on the boy's legs as well. Roscoe took the stage and fell in love. He kept working small parts as he was able, which, of course, his mom eventually found out about. But by then, he was bringing home $5 or so every week, and she was happy to overlook his truancy in favor of dough. This was probably the first time that Roscoe learned that giving other people money seemed to make them like him more, but it wouldn't be the last. When Roscoe was 12, his life was upended. His mother may not have been terribly loving toward him, but she was still his mother, and it still crushed him when she died in 1898. He bounced around a bit after that, before his father finally came to claim him, dragging him to Northern California, where he owned a small hotel. As difficult as life could be with Mother Mary, life with Father William was much, much worse. He was a drunk and a violent one at that. He remarried a woman who would later recall her husband beating Roscoe, choking Roscoe, throwing bottles at Roscoe. And this stepmother was no prize either. She complained to reporters that Roscoe didn't send them enough money after he got rich. And Roscoe eventually got incredibly rich.
0: A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up,
1: Now, Chances are, you've heard of Fatty Arbuckle, at least peripherally. His name is routinely dropped into stories about Hollywood crimes and mysteries and excess. So you probably know that he was one of the world's top comedians back in his day. What you might not know is that he didn't start out particularly funny. He actually began as a singer. He had a beautiful, angelic singing voice. And his first major gig on stage was called Illustrated Songs, which essentially were precursors to music videos. A singer would belt out tunes on a stage. And while that was happening, a curated series of images would be projected from glass slides onto a screen behind him. Roscoe made decent money doing this, but it wasn't very fulfilling for him artistically. He wanted to create. So he took a pay cut to join a vaudeville show that was traveling across the U.S. Through vaudeville, Roscoe got to be a jack-of-all-trades. He sang, he acted, he cracked jokes, he played the foil. He was a great supporting player, especially because he could be surprisingly physical for a guy his size. I mean, Roscoe Arbuckle hit 200 pounds before he hit his teens. And while people don't automatically associate obesity with physical prowess, he's the proof that the two aren't at all mutually exclusive. This is
0: author Robert Young. So this is a man who in his prime weighed 266 pounds. He could leap off a platform 20 feet high and hit the floor without a mattress, by the way, and get up and brush himself off. He was agile, muscular, emotional. He was a very tender, loving, good-natured person. I couldn't find proof that
1: he ever fell a full 20 feet, but he did routinely fall down stairs, off of banisters, and in one film even managed to turn a fall into a prolonged backflip. Roscoe was downright graceful. He loved to swim and was good at sports, and as he toured with this comedy show... He learned how to take a fall without hurting himself. Those falls had the audiences howling. Now, Arbuckle was big, so the character named Fatty seemed inevitable. He didn't like the name, in part because he'd been called that by cruel bullies and his abusive father. But Fatty stuck nonetheless.
2: Fat was considered funny. But there's a certain degree of natural cruelty, unfortunately, to human nature.
1: That was Tonight Show legend Steve Allen, who also composed the poorly-reviewed Arbuckle musical called Fatty. Cruel nickname aside, Arbuckle saw a future in comedy, though at first he was pretty rough around the edges. He could pratfall like a master, but his timing was off and his jokes just weren't sharp. So he forced himself to study. He learned everything he could about the brand-new business of filmmaking focusing specifically on how comedy translated to the medium. For a guy who didn't like school much, he definitely loved learning. He even took apart a part of film camera and reassembled it just so he would know exactly how the thing worked. In 1906, he got another big break when he joined a vaudeville troupe organized by Australia-born comedian Leon Errol. With that troupe, Roscoe played mostly at the Orpheum Theater in Portland, Oregon, refining his comedy and his love life. He met a petite, pretty brunette actress named Minta Durfee, who initially rebuffed him. She actually told him to stop hitting on her because she didn't like fat men. But in her telling, she really was attracted to him, but didn't like how forward he had been when they first met on a train. Though they'd met completely by chance, it turned out that she was in the same vaudeville troupe, and the size disparity between the two actors made them an inherently funny duo. So they were often paired. After a few months, they began to take walks together on their breaks. Minta had entered show business as a chorus girl in her teens, and her upbringing was everything Roscoe's wasn't. Her family life was stable and loving, and her mother welcomed Roscoe into the fold as though he were one of her own. Without that family support, Roscoe probably would have remained a bit player, but with the Durfees, things just clicked, both personally and professionally. On stage, Roscoe and Minta became crowd favorites, so much so that when they married in 1908, people bought tickets to attend as though it was part of a show. Remember how Kim Kardashian had that five-minute made-for-TV marriage to Chris Humphreys? It would have been the vaudeville equivalent of that, except it was a real wedding. The next year, Roscoe got his first break in moving pictures when he was hired by Selig Polyscope Company, founded in 1896 as one of the country's first motion picture companies, to perform a two-reeler comedy called Ben's Kid. Each reel of film ran about 10 minutes, so a two-reeler clocked in at around 20 minutes. His character on screen was usually that of an overgrown child getting into trouble, which in some ways wasn't a huge stretch. Roscoe definitely had a bit of overgrown child in him, which came out most when he was around his wife's family, and the nieces and nephews and neighborhood kids would play ball with him or tackle him, and he loved it. It was the childhood he never had. Author Andy Edmonds. I think people love Roscoe Arbuckle because he captured the innocence that everybody wishes they kind of had. He was this big, dumb, goofy kid, and all this chaos happened around him. He was just this nice, lovable guy through it all. His success in pictures kept growing until he crossed paths with Max Sennett, a Canadian-American performer who was set to completely revolutionize comedy with the Keystone Film Company. If you've ever heard the phrase, Keystone Cops... Senate's the guy to thank for it. The Keystone Cops was a troop of sorts, of goofy, bumbling, slapstick police officers who were hilariously inept at their jobs. They'd fall on their faces while running after criminals or getting giant car chases that Senate sped up in editing. They looked ridiculous, too, wearing uniforms that didn't fit.
2: The Max Senate studios were filming these Keystone Cops, and they said, you're a perfect type to be a Keystone cop because you're fat. None of these Keystone Cops are fat.
1: This is author Stuart Oderman talking to a reporter.
2: Senate auditioned Fatty Arbuckle. He said, let me see what you can do. And Arbuckle did a a few tumbles and he said, report to my studio
1: tomorrow. Roscoe was an immediate hit. He could wear such an earnest expression on his round face while running around, slipping and sliding. He and Charlie Chaplin were the breakouts. Roscoe was such a fan favorite. In fact, that legend has it, a similarly rotund actress named Marie Dressler refused to act alongside him in a film called Tilly's Punctured Romance because she was worried she'd be upstaged. That film was the very first feature-length comedy produced in America, and Roscoe was forever ticked that he hadn't been part of it. Andy Edmonds again. He was the most popular comedian, the highest paid comedian. He was far more popular than Charlie Chaplin. Actually, that's up for debate. This is author Stuart Oderman talking to a reporter.
2: Oh, in career terms, he was second to Charlie Chaplin in popularity. He was very popular with, with little children because of his size, because you never had a fat man as a comedian. But he was a fat man who was very agile and he could roll under buses and he was very graceful.
1: Chaplin was wooed away from Keystone with the promise of bigger bucks at the end of 1914, leaving Roscoe as the company's biggest star. He didn't only play a bumbling cop, he often starred alongside Mabel Normand, one of the world's most famous actresses. Just like Roscoe's wife, Mabel was a petite-featured brunette who was a perfect match for the heavy actor on screen and that they looked so incredibly odd together. But their pairing was about more than that. Mabel, who is sometimes called the godmother of slapstick, had real comedy chops, serving as a mentor to both Arbuckle and Chaplin. Plus, she could prop-fall with the best of them. Little by little, Roscoe's paychecks steadily increased to about $26,000 a year, which is some $340,000 in today's money. Not bad at all, but Roscoe wanted more, He was making Senate and others straight-up millions, after all. He started getting more creative control as a writer and director, as well as star. Paramount swooped in and offered him the then-unheard-of deal of $1,000 per day plus 25% of profits. And that proved so lucrative that they upped the offer, guaranteeing $1 million a year for three years in exchange for 18 pictures. That's about $13 million a year today.
2: He was the first movie star in America to receive a contract of $1 million a year, and this was signed in 1920. It was a three-year contract, tax-free.
1: Not surprisingly, he had no idea what to do with all this money. He'd always been fascinated by cars, so he bought several including a customized 1919 Pierce Arrow soft top painted a deep purple that cost him some $36,000.
0: This is a big flashy car. It was made for a big flashy man.
1: This is from a video I found online that features Roscoe's refurbished car. It survives to this day.
0: This car was custom-built for Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. You might not know that name, but in 1919, he was the highest-paid movie performer in America, pulling in even more money than legends like Charlie Chaplin.
1: Contrary to the rumors, the car did not have a toilet inside, but it did have plenty of places to hide Prohibition-era Booze. Ooh. It also had a pair of inlaid mahogany cabinets built into the back of the front seat. As Roscoe's star rose, his marriage foundered. Minta had been Roscoe's first love, and once they were married, they were together all the time, both at work and at home. Minta later would blame their struggles on just getting sick of each other. By the late 1910s, he and Minta were officially separated with a financial agreement and everything. It was, by the sound of things, as amicable as one could hope. Minta was paid $500 a week and lived near her family. Roscoe became the first actor to earn a million dollars a year and lived the life of an insanely rich bachelor. A bachelor who really liked to party.
0: A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable
1: Imagine you were raised not just poor, but also with parents who didn't seem to give a damn about you. You were bullied and taunted and insecure. You want to rise above all that, though, so you set your sights on making people happy. And that's your life's goal and your career's purpose. And it turns out you're good at it. So good that suddenly you're one of the richest people in the world. Roscoe didn't know how to handle it mentally. And emotionally, he was by then hardwired to try and please others. Just as he had pleased his mom by bringing home dough as a kid, he endeared himself to his friends by being incredibly generous. Add to that an immaturity that came from a stunted childhood, and it's not hard to grasp how he ended up in the middle of Hollywood's first major scandal.
2: It was over Labor Day weekend 1921.
1: This is Oderman, the author again, talking to a reporter.
2: And the idea was San Francisco was Hollywood's playground. Mm. He went to San Francisco uh, several hundred miles away, and nobody would know about it.
1: The St. Francis Hotel was one of the most luxurious hotels in the city. Built in 1904, it was a favorite of the rich and famous, and Arbuckle was no exception. On Labor Day weekend, he booked three adjoining rooms for him and his two friends— and one room was actor-director Lowell Sherman. The middle room was decked out like a living room. Arbuckle and Romanian-born actor Fred Fishback shared the third room. The two rooms used as sleeping quarters had bathrooms attached. The middle one didn't. This becomes pertinent later. The party started Friday and never really stopped. There would just be lulls. On Monday, September 5th, Arbuckle woke up around 11 a.m. during such a lull and didn't even bother to dress straight away. He still had on pajamas and a bathrobe when a friend of a friend invited Virginia Raphe to the suite. Arbuckle's parties were legendary already. He'd never been a fan of the whole prohibition thing and, in fact, was known to have stocked his Hollywood basement with so much booze that a month's worth of wild weekends didn't even dent his supply. The whole 19th Amendment business was easy to get around for most people, but especially for people with money, even when they were out of town at a posh hotel. Oderman describes the scene.
2: You would see a very, a very heavy Arbuckle dressed in pajamas. You had a table with food, you had a table with bootleg hooch, because he went to a local bootlegger to get some liquor, and they sent out for records. And if anyone met a woman there that he liked, well, they would disappear into a room for an hour or two and come back and go to the party. By the third day, everyone was totally
1: sloshed. Virginia Repay was beautiful and young-ish. She'd actually been fudging her age for years, so... After this weekend, it would be widely reported that she died at age 25. In reality, she was 30. That fact will probably be lost to history because even her tombstone lists her birth year as 1895, but the well-researched book Room 1219, The Life of Fatty Arbuckle by Greg Merritt clarifies that in reality, she was born July 7, 1891 in Chicago, not as Virginia Rappé, but as the more pedestrian-sounding Virginia Rap. Like Roscoe, Virginia had a childhood marked by tragedy. She was born to an unwed mother and never knew her father. In fact, for much of her youth, she thought that her mom, Mabel Rapp, was her older sister. It's unclear who fathered her, though there would later be some rampant speculation. A wire story I found in Iowa's Sioux City Journal on September 20th, 1921, was headlined, Miss Rappé, Daughter of English Nobleman said to have jilted her mother during gay days of Chicago World's Fair. The story, citing a woman named Mrs. Rafferty, who said she was once a nurse and a friend of Virginia's grandmother, read, quote, "'Because of the Englishman, Mabel Rapp, "'noted for her beauty, broke her engagement "'with the son of a noted Chicago family, "'trusting in the promises of the Englishman "'that he would marry her,' end quote." Who knows if that's true, But I did find a Chicago Tribune story in 1893 that describes some sort of weird love triangle resulting in Mabel being shot by a woman jealous over a guy called Joseph Culbertson. Mabel survived the flesh wound. Mabel, the mother-slash-sister, died when Virginia was around 11, so the girl was shipped to her relatives to be raised. I mean, she was a cute little girl on pace to become a stunning young woman. So around age 14, she started working as a commercial and art model. It sounds like she was fairly troubled, though, too. That Mrs. Rafferty source from The Englishman Story appears in Merritt's book because she eventually testified in a deposition that, as a midwife, she had assisted in at least four abortions performed on Virginia between 1908 to 1910. And character maligning aside... This becomes relevant later. Whatever her rocky start, Virginia sounds pretty forward thinking on the whole. And this was a woman who made a pact with her two sisters to never get married. Her sisters broke their vows eventually, and Virginia herself got engaged a few times, but she never did get hitched. It seems she wasn't keen on relying on a man to make her way, and she had what we would recognize today as an entrepreneurial spirit. Aside from modeling, she designed her own clothes for a spell and was pretty savvy about generating publicity for her handiwork. She also started acting bit roles in small movies, which is how she first crossed paths with Roscoe Arbuckle in the mid-1910s. Her longest-lasting relationship was with director Henry Lehrman, who had worked with Arbuckle on some of the star's early movies. Henry and Virginia met in 1919, and by Merritt's account, had a passionate but volatile relationship. There's debate over whether they were really engaged at the time of Virginia's death or if Henry embellished things afterward, but it's clear at least that Virginia loved the guy because she talked about him in her dying days. So what happened to lead to those dying days? And the story has been muddied and mistold over the past century, a hundred years this Labor Day, in fact. But here's what we know what happened after Virginia Rappé arrived at Arbuckle's suite that afternoon. Quick heads up that the next section includes details of an alleged sexual assault. After drinking several orange blossoms, a mix of gin, orange juice, and sweet vermouth, Virginia had to go to the bathroom. She left the common room part of the three-room suite, and tried to get into one of the two bathrooms, but a friend she had brought to the party, a woman named Bambina Maud Delmont, was occupying it with Sherman. Virginia left that bedroom, walked across the common room, and entered room 1219, the second bedroom, which had a bathroom. It's not clear if Roscoe saw her enter. It's hard to imagine he didn't, since there weren't many people there at that point, but either way, he followed her, shutting and locking the door behind him. The next time any of the other guests saw Virginia, she was writhing in pain. It seems everyone assumed Virginia had imbibed too heartily. She was ripping at her clothes, which turned out was something she was known to do while drinking. We all have weird, only-when-I'm-drunk habits, I guess. And moaning that she was dying. Actor Fred Fishback got a cold bath ready for her and put her in it then carried her back to the bed. Delmont supposedly rubbed her down with ice. Roscoe might or might not have made a crude joke with said ice, something along the lines of touching it to her vagina and saying, that ought to make her come too, which would translate as awfully crass through the prism of her death a few days later. He also at some point told someone, oh, shut up or I'll throw you out the window. Though it's unclear if he was saying that to the dying woman or to Delmont, Who had tried to kick him out of his own hotel room while she attended Virginia? Arbuckle then rented Virginia a hotel room down the hall and helped carry her there so hotel physicians could check on her. Thus began a series of bad choices that likely cost Virginia her life. Instead of taking Virginia to a hospital, she was kept in room 1227 for three days, attended to by two staff physicians, like the party guests. They thought she'd just had too much to drink, so they quieted her with morphine. At some point, upon realizing that she still hadn't peed, and so it had been some 15 hours since she last urinated, they catheterized her. She had blood in her urine at that point, but she still wasn't shipped to a hospital. When the morphine wore off, the agony resumed And finally, Delmont called in an outside doctor named Melvin Rumwell. He was at least the third doctor to diagnose her with alcohol poisoning. On Thursday, September 8th, so three days after the party, she wasn't any better. Arbuckle was long gone, not for any known nefarious reason. Everyone had left. They all thought she had just had too much to drink and was having a bad reaction to it. So they partied and danced the rest of Monday, and then they returned home without giving it much thought. Never did it occur to anyone she might be dying. At this point, Dr. Rumwell thought maybe Virginia had a kidney infection and possibly a venereal disease to boot. He had her transferred not to a hospital, but to a sanitarium, which was only six blocks from the hotel, so probably seemed the best choice. Rumwell had staff privileges there, and the doctor who ran it specialized in OBGYN matters. It was an understandable choice, but it might have been the final nail in Virginia's coffin. She slipped into a coma on September 9th and died that afternoon. When Arbuckle learned of her fate, he was floored and immediately sensitive to what the press might report. He had just signed a new million-dollar-a-year contract with Paramount. He told a couple of reporters that Virginia had been at his party drinking and then suddenly became hysterical. At no point was I alone in a room with her, he lied. Now, why he lied, we'll never know. Was it a knee-jerk response that he never thought would come back to bite him? Was it because something untoward had happened behind those closed doors that he didn't want to cop to? Or was it something even more sinister? Regardless, when you lie to the police, especially police investigating a death, they tend to think your reason for lying isn't innocent. After Virginia died, Rumwell performed an autopsy that technically was illegal. This is Judge George Choplis of the San Francisco Municipal Court speaking to Court
0: TV. They performed an autopsy without obtaining the permission from the San Francisco coroner. Now, this was illegal. There was talk that the reason that they did this was to cover up an illegal abortion.
1: As in an illegal abortion they themselves just performed. There's no evidence supporting that Virginia had been pregnant when she died but the unorthodox autopsy certainly fed the conspiracy theories, especially because Rumwell removed Virginia's organs and had potentially destroyed crucial evidence. What's agreed upon is that her bladder had ruptured and blood had filled her abdominal cavity. The ruptured bladder had been left to fester, causing severe peritonitis or an infection in the lining of her abdominal wall. What's not agreed upon is what caused the rupture in the first place. San Francisco District Attorney Matthew Brady alleged that Arbuckle had tried to rape Virginia, and in this attempt, he threw his gigantic 300-pound body on top of the petite girl, causing her bladder to rupture. Never mind the fact that...
2: There was no sign whatsoever of sexual assault.
1: This gets complicated, so bear with me. Brady believed that Arbuckle's girth put fatal pressure on Virginia's bladder. And it seemed Brady couldn't fathom someone like Virginia wanting to have sex with a fatty like Arbuckle. So the DA insisted Arbuckle must have tried to rape her, never mind that there was no evidence pointing to a rape attempt. Virginia was even still clothed. Now, obese people generally have healthy sex lives with zero casualties, so there was another factor in Virginia's death she already had a distended bladder. Doctors testified that she had had ongoing bladder issues for literally years, issues that included interstitial cystitis, which is a chronic condition causing pressure and pain in the bladder that can radiate throughout the pelvis. So Virginia's injury could have happened much like Brady envisioned. Arbuckle's weight maybe was too much for a swollen bladder. But that could have happened from consensual contact too. Neither Virginia nor Arbuckle would likely have admitted to trying to get frisky because technically Arbuckle was still married to someone else and Paramount wouldn't have wanted his multi-million dollar reputation tarnished. How's that for irony? Also, Virginia still loved Henry Learman. And one of the few things Virginia's known to have said in her last days was, please don't tell Henry. Regardless of what really happened, Brady's belief was that though Arbuckle didn't set out to kill Virginia, his massive weight caused her death anyway. So the DA charged the star with murder, not manslaughter, because he believed Virginia died from thwarting off a rapist. The press, of course, had a field day with the story. He was hung out to dry by the newspapers. The newspapers made a fortune off him. This is Ben Modell, a silent film historian.
2: As soon as the press got, got wind of all this, there were these huge blaring headlines and articles before a lot of facts uh, could be gotten. In order to have a story, things were either doctored or made up or just speculated on. And there was the image of the fat man and the innocent little girl.
1: The eventual version heard from Arbuckle was quite different. He said he hadn't noticed Virginia going into 1219, and he decided 1.30 p.m. was finally too late for pajamas, so he went into his hotel room and shut and locked the door so he could change. He went into the bathroom and found Virginia on the floor. She'd vomited and was clearly in pain. He picked her up to help her, even holding her hair back as she vomited again into the toilet and carried her to one of the two beds in the room. He didn't think much about why she was sick. I mean, they'd been drinking, after all. It happens. So he used the bathroom and, a few minutes later, came back into the room and found Virginia on the floor, apparently having fallen from the bed. She was holding her abdomen and moaning. Arbuckle opened the door and the other guests rushed in, finding Virginia clothed, though temporarily because she was ripping her clothes off at that point and she'd end up nude. In the four agonizing days that followed, Virginia never accused Arbuckle of trying to rape her. The most accusatory statement assigned to her, aside from one I'll discuss in a minute, was, he hurt me. But it wasn't clear if she was talking about Arbuckle or talking about Fred Fishback, the guy who'd put her in a cold bath. And even if the comment was about Arbuckle, it didn't mean he was trying to assault her. Just that, whether intentionally or inadvertently, he'd hurt her somehow. The strongest allegation against Arbuckle came from the aforementioned Bambina Maud Delmont, who had been summoned to the party by Virginia. She had been having a great time there, too. At some point, stripping out of her clothes and putting on a pair of Sherman's pajamas. Her explanation was that she had gotten too hot in her normal attire After Virginia died, she told
0: police, Mr. Arbuckle entertained a number of men in his rooms and there was much drinking and many women guests. He had made a number of advances towards Sweet Virginia who rebuffed him each time. He then dragged the poor girl into his bedroom and locked the door.
1: That was an actress reading Delmont's statement for a Court TV documentary. Delmont said that she had seen Arbuckle pull Virginia into room 1219, saying, I've waited for you for five years, and now I've got you. Delmont also said she had been banging and kicking at the door to the room for an hour, and that Virginia immediately said, I'm dying, he hurt me, when the door finally opened. But Delmont's tale was problematic for a number of reasons. First off, she hadn't been in the common room when Virginia went into room 1219. If you remember, she'd been locked in a bathroom with Lowell Sherman, so she couldn't have seen Arbuckle drag Virginia into the third room. Plus, Delmont didn't have the best reputation. Though she looked rather matronly, she had an impressive rap sheet that included theft and blackmail.
2: Maud Delmont's criminal record was so bad that It could have been introduced in evidence and used to impeach her.
1: That's Frank D. Winston, a lawyer and Arbuckle expert. During a coroner's inquest, Delmont was so rattled on the stand, so easily turned around in her testimony, that Prosecutor Brady never called her as a witness in trial. Instead, he relied upon a couple of other partygoers whose testimony wasn't nearly as damning, legally, anyway. The court of public opinion was another matter altogether. Fatty Arbuckle went to trial, charged with manslaughter, not murder, it should be noted, on November 14, 1921, so just two months after Virginia died. His estranged wife, Minta Durfee, was by his side. She wasn't pretending to stand by her man, for whatever that's worth, I mean, she and Arbuckle never pretended that they hadn't been separated for years prior to the incident. But Durfee said, there's no way Arbuckle hurt anyone. It just wasn't in his makeup, she said. Plus, the press coverage had been incredibly sensational, full of lies that still linger a hundred years later, and she felt sorry for the guy. So she went with him to court day after day, as did her mother. Her every move was as scrutinized by the press as his was. And make no mistake, the press was reporting every little thing. Forget movie theaters. All the entertainment you would ever need was right there in the courtroom. Matthew Brady put on a big theatrical show. The attorneys uh, would ask these big sweeping questions, and they were overly dramatic. They knew they would be quoted by the press. Arbuckle, who had certainly done himself no favors by initially lying about being alone in the room with Virginia during the party, managed to help himself by testifying in his own defense. He was calm, straightforward, and unrattled, even as the prosecution tried to undermine him. The jurors deliberated for 44 hours, never coming to a consensus, largely because one woman told jurors she would not change her guilty vote if hell froze over. The judge declared a mistrial. Prosecutor Brady vowed to try the case again, and he did so beginning January 11, 1922. This trial largely followed the same pattern as the first, except one of the prosecution's witnesses actually recanted her borderline damaging testimony against Arbuckle. She said Brady had forced her to lie. By the trial's end, the defense was so confident that this time they didn't have Arbuckle take the stand and even skipped giving a closing argument to the jury. The jury again deliberated for about 44 hours, but again came back deadlocked, this time with a 10 to 2 majority favoring conviction. It turned out that the defense's cockiness nearly condemned their client. By the third trial, Arbuckle was persona non grata in Hollywood. His films had been banned, and the nationwide coverage of his parties, often labeled orgies, whether deserved or not, had absolutely destroyed his reputation. In the third trial, the prosecution called a witness that could have potentially been the most damning to Arbuckle yet, a nurse who had treated Virginia came forward and said that Rappe told her Arbuckle had pushed her onto a bed and put his weight on her. Arbuckle again took the stand and denied this. His testimony was steady and seemed heartfelt. His lawyers also changed tack this time around, entering in as much unflattering testimony about Virginia as the judge would allow. Law professor Gary Yuleman.
0: It was not really until the third trial that the defense decided to pull out the stops in terms of actually attacking the character of the victim.
1: Hints of abortion, venereal disease, even possible sex work, tarnished the image of the young woman who had for so long been painted an ethereal, innocent victim. This time, the jury wasn't mixed. From Court TV.
0: Third trial, the jury came in with an acquittal after minutes of deliberation. That wasn't enough for this jury. What they said was acquittal is not good enough for Fatty Arbuckle. And they indicated that there was never any evidence of any criminal act. Very unusual for a jury to ever come back and make a public statement like that following a uh, decision of acquittal.
1: Arbuckle had hoped that this was the end of it, but cancel culture existed long before Twitter. Arbuckle's movies were often protested if a theater dared play them. The case had also set in motion the ascendancy of William H. Hayes, hired as head of the newly formed Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America Censor Board. Hayes cited Arbuckle as an example of Hollywood's lax morals and banned him from ever working in U.S. movies again. He lifted the ban in late 1922, but the damage was already done. Arbuckle, wasn't welcome on America's silver screens anymore. And he tried everything. He tried writing. He tried to be a director. He tried everything. He tried using another name, and he couldn't get himself lost. This is Jean Darling, a silent era actress best known as one of the early Our Gang cast members. And she's half right here. What's amazing to me about this story is how much information has been adopted as fact over the decades.
0: You can ask people today who remember him, and they'll tell you, he raped a girl with a Coke bottle or a champagne bottle, depending on who's telling the story.
1: Roscoe wasn't accused of rape, not ever. In fact, Virginia told one of the doctors working on her in the days after her collapse that he did not attempt to assault her, though for some reason the judge ruled that statement was inadmissible as hearsay, while others, like, he hurt me, I'm dying, were allowed. Arbuckle also didn't live the rest of his life hand to mouth, as is often depicted. And this is the line I believed when coming into this research.
0: Here we have a man who was at the height of his career, who ate lavish food, drank the the best wine, the finest champagne, uh, the most expensive caviar, uh, had the biggest house in Hollywood, had the biggest car in Hollywood. Uh, He was reduced to uh, the status of a common criminal living in an absolute squalor.
1: Yeah, that's not really true. Arbuckle struggled, sure, but he didn't disappear from Hollywood altogether. He adopted his father's first and middle names, William Goodrich, and continued to direct.
2: He was hired in Hollywood as a director, which he did very well He directing Buster Keaton, but he could not get work as Roscoe Arbuckle because his, his crime was still against him.
1: He also returned to the stage. He made nowhere near the money he was making under Paramount, but he made enough that he continued paying Minta Durfee alimony after their eventual divorce. He married and divorced again an actress named Doris Dean. His third marriage came June 21st, 1932, to a woman named Addie McPhail. With Addie, Arbuckle's life finally seemed to find some mooring. That same year, he signed a contract with Warner Brothers to star under his own name in a series of two real comedies. By this point, silence was no longer golden. Talkies were the rage. Arbuckle translated to sound brilliantly, and the American public seemed ready to welcome him back. He'd released four of the comedies and filmed the final two of his contract and was feeling reborn. On June 28, 1933, he and Addie went out to belatedly celebrate their first wedding anniversary. That night, reportedly feeling happier than he had in more than a decade, Roscoe Arbuckle went to bed and never woke up. He died in his sleep of a heart attack at age 46. To research this story, I read Greg Merritt's Room 1219, The Life of Fatty Arbuckle, which debunked Quite a few of the lies that other authors have perpetuated in their own books over the years. And the Court TV documentary I use for sound, for example, is on the whole unreliable, so I was picky about using clips with info that I could verify. I don't recommend that documentary. I'd also like to give a shout out to the guy who taught that silent movie class I took in 1997 at the University of Iowa. While it focused on Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, it, of course, touched on Arbuckle and the Keystone Cops, and that was the first time I ever heard of this particular crime of the century. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.